There's a great book by uh, the famous theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer entitled Life Together. It's a, a treatise on how we as the body of Christ, the church, should live together, how we do life together. There's a lot of great books on how to do church, how to do life together. I think this is one of the best ones. But long before Bonhoeffer wrote about 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul also wrote about how to do life together as the church. In his letter to the church in Corinth, if, if I were to rename this book from 1 Corinthians to something else, I wouldn't call it life together. I'd probably call it messy life together because that's what Paul was dealing with. The messiness of being the church, the messiness of doing life together as the body of Christ. Because at times we get to see how the church here in this letter in the New Testament, how it creates such a mess as it tries to live together. We get to see the conflict that the community is in and how they're having growing pains and, and what it means to be the church. This letter from Paul to the church, though, is still vitally important for us today. Paul is trying to help the church have unity in the midst of this culture that is corrupt in a messy world. And this is no easy task. So we're going to spend the next seven weeks, seven weeks going over this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And, and as we go through this series, I would encourage you to take time to get your Bible and just read through 1 Corinthians, maybe read it through several times so you can get a feel for how this letter goes. And, and as you read it, just think about the different issues that we're dealing with. It's the same issues that the church is dealing with today. How do we do this messy life together? What does it mean to be the church? What's the most important thing in life? These are some of the questions we're looking at in 1 Corinthians. But before we jump into the text, I want us to take a step back and get a little bit of the context of the history of this letter. Um, and Corinth, it, the major city in the Roman Empire during the time that Paul was writing, it was an important metropolitan city. Not only was it uh, situated on a major trade route, but it was also a port city meaning that there were many people always coming and going through Corinth from all over the world, really. Uh, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And at the end of the second century, it had also become one of the richest cities in the world. While it was known, again, to be one of the richest and largest cities, it was also known as one of really kind of the most pagan and immoral cities from our standards uh, of the ancient time. The city was famous for its worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. Its most famous temple to Aphrodite stood at one of the most prominent places of the city, and it really couldn't be missed. It just kind of stood out. It was believed to have housed up to a thousand temple prostitutes at one time. So Paul resided in this city for about 18 months on his second missionary journey to the Gentiles. This is where he would plant the church, the church in Corinth, uh, and the church would become one of the most important churches in history, really, because, because of where it was, because of how many people could come in and out of the city, uh, because it was a major trade route. Um, it, was, it was a place where the gospel could really be spread throughout the world. And three years after the church was planted, Paul would write this first letter to the Corinthian believers regarding how the church was acting. These new Christians in Corinth 
they were struggling. They were struggling with many different issues. And one of the first issues Paul addresses in his letter is the issue of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom, something we often see in short supply. Today we have more education, more information, and more knowledge than ever before. But I'm not sure we have more wisdom. Uh, Wisdom knows what to do with education and information and knowledge. For example, if I can recite all of the books in the Bible, you know, all 66, but don't know how they connect together, then I might have knowledge, but I really don't have wisdom. And we see that in the world today, that the wisdom of the world is often really opposed to the wisdom of God, that they are two different things. And here is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And the people of Corinth are struggling with this issue of of wisdom. How do they anchor their life? A culture that said one thing and their beliefs that said another look very different. Life in Jesus means that our wisdom comes from God. And and we can see, you can imagine the people of Corinth, they lived in a culture and a society built around a structure of wisdom that was uh, was kind of built around an, an honor and shame culture. And in an honor and shame culture, um, having honor was, was one of the most important things you could have. And being shamed was one of the worst things that could ever happen to you. Having honor was more important than wealth and prestige. Uh, it didn't, you could be a slave and still have more honor. And so one of the worst things, though, as I said, was for, for your reputation to be tarnished publicly, to be shamed. So we have this honor and shame culture in which Paul is living into that is vastly different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We still see a little bit of that honor and shame in our culture. We see it in the airbrushed pictures of celebrities where truth isn't important. It's just that they look good, right? Or that they have thousands, if not millions of followers. You know, we have in our culture now influencers who have a lot of influence because of uh, they, they really haven't done anything. They just comment on stuff and they have millions of people who look to them for advice. And in the society of Corinth, again, a person's worth is based on your recognition and specifically recognition by others for what you have done. But there is also a lot of self-promotion as well going on in Corinth. And archaeologists have uncovered you know, hundreds of these relics and plaques from this age that was promoting people or self-promoting people. Let me just read one. This is talking about a, a man named Nicodos. And, uh, and that it says, uh, he never permits an opportunity to pass of showing kindness to the state as a whole and to our individual citizens who visit Aegean and need assistance. Voted by the assembly to commend Nicodos because of the kindness which he continually shows, etc., etc. So you have that, and again, we have that even in our society where we have plaques in honor and memory of, of people. But in, in the ancient Near East, they, they took this to a whole nother level. It was an art form. If they could self-promote or be recognized, that honor was the most important. It was a culture built on boasting, preening, pride, prancing, self-promotion. 
It saturated all areas of life. A culture where climbing the social ladder is critical, not only acceptable, but critical. So again, imagine living in that type of culture and then becoming a Christian. And it was hard for many to renounce their their old ways, this pride, this self-promotion. Habits, you know, they die hard sometimes. This is kind of the background of the church in Corinth, a church that was ripe for conflict as it tried to live faithfully in community with people of different status and, and people boasting and being uh, bragging about different things. So here Paul is trying to give them a new purpose, a new reason for living, a new moral identity, a new theological identity, bringing together rich and poor, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, male, female, that this was messy. Uh, because what is acceptable in the world might not be what is acceptable in the church. And it's not an easy task to live this messy life together. So Paul is writing to address these issues that the Corinthian Christians are running headlong into, into a, a culture and a society that is corrupt and has a different value system than the church. Again, I think that applies directly to us today as, as we in the church try to deal with living in a messy world. Um, it, it takes wisdom. And as I would say, it, it takes some messy wisdom here. Paul is convinced that the Corinthians have mixed up ideas about wisdom, what is wise. And Paul uses the Greek word for wisdom, which is Sophia, 17 times, 17 times in 1 Corinthians. 16 of these times are in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. He only uses this word 11 times in all of his other writings. So here we see Paul is really focused on what it means to be wise, what it means to have wisdom. Um, in the world of Corinth, it's shouting out that wisdom is self-promotion. Wisdom is having honor. This is what wisdom means. That wisdom is making sure that other people think that you're special or worthy. That to be wise is to climb the social ladder and really at the expense of anyone around you. And for the church to be healthy, to have wisdom, it must live differently from the world. The wisdom of the world, as we said, vastly different from the wisdom of God. In fact, let's go back and I want to reread a, a longer section of our text this morning to get a little bit deeper context. And I would encourage you again to go back, read this in the scripture, read Corinthians several times uh, as well. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. If you have your Bible, get it out. You can pause uh, and, and then get it out and read it in your Bible. You might even want to enter, underline I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. This is Paul speaking. He says this, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness 
is wiser than human wisdom. Let me say that again. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I know that was a long text. You might want to go back and reread it. But in this culture about self-boasting, Paul says that we should only boast in the Lord. This whole section here is about the cross, the wisdom of the cross. It is contrary to anything else the world can imagine. And so we have this wisdom that is in the cross versus this wisdom of culture. You know, for the pagans, for this metropolitan people of this major city, a crucified Messiah is foolishness. How could one be powerful if they demote themselves and ultimately are killed and destroyed by Rome, the very culture in which you're supposed to have status? And so the Messiah to a Corinthian seems foolish, a crucified Messiah. It makes no sense. And for the Jews, a crucified Messiah is a scandal, right? Cursed is anyone who is hung from a tree. That because the Jews really hadn't expected a suffering Messiah, their idea of a Messiah, of a Savior, was a king who would come in and conquer, who would bring an army and destroy Rome. For them, the Messiah always meant triumph over their enemies, especially Rome. So here we have foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal for the Jews, but wisdom from God. This messy wisdom from God, again, was a tough thing. But, here's the but, to those of us being saved, oh, for those of us being saved, this changes everything. Verse 18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We now have the power of God. The cross is the power of God. This salvation by the cross changes literally everything. When it says us who are being saved, but to us who are being saved, that idea of salvation, that, that verb tense to us being saved, it has in its context in the original Greek, it has this idea of, of salvation that looks past it looks into our present and looks into our future. So this salvation, the power of God, changes everything. It changes our past, it changes our present, and it changes our future. This is the wisdom of the cross, that it changes everything. We are no longer defined by our past, no matter what we've been through. The cross changes it and overcomes our past. It gives purpose to our present and gives us hope to carry on in the present, and it also changes our future, giving us an ultimate hope for the future, a purpose and identity for the future. Whether we are broke, rich, slave, lost, Gentile, Greek, Jew, male, female, nothing matters in comparison to the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ by His sacrifice on the cross. This is the wisdom God is calling 
us to. The wisdom of the cross. Listen again, verse 26. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you who were wise by human standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross, here was what Paul is telling us. It saves to the fullest. It saves completely. And what does the text say? Jesus is the source of our life. He is the source of wisdom. The cross and Jesus crucified is wisdom. And it is beyond anything else we could have. And it is the most important thing we should pursue. And we don't receive it on our own merits. None of us can boast. And beyond that, Jesus is, it says this, He is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And uh, Ben Witherington, a great uh, New Testament scholar, kind of helped me see the all-encompassing ways in which this cross saves using these three words, it, that all-encompassing aspects of the cross because when we read these words, you know, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, we just think of them as kind of Christian terms. But if you dig a little deeper into these terms, when we when we talk about salvation, there are different metaphors that these terms bring to mind. So when we say righteousness, that Christ is our righteousness, it means that we have a right standing. So in the metaphor of a court of law, a judge has claimed that we are no longer guilty, but we have a right standing. We have become righteous. So there's that judicial metaphor of righteousness. And then when we talk about sanctification, it's this idea of being made holy and set apart, kind of a religious metaphor, absolutely. So we have a jurisdictional, uh, judicial uh, metaphor. We have this religious metaphor of sanctification, being set apart and holy, and then redemption. Redemption is that idea of being set free. The ransom has been paid for our freedom. We are no longer slaves. We have been saved. So we have this, uh, this slavery to freedom idea. So we have this judicial salvation. We have a religious salvation. And we have this slave to freedom salvation. This all-encompassing wisdom of the cross, which saves our past, our present, our future, which covers everything. This is what the cross means. It gives us a right standing in the court of law. It makes us holy and set apart as the church. And it sets us free from the bondage of slavery. Praise God. This is the amazing thing that we have in Christ. This cross not just saves, but it saves to the uttermost. There is nothing else we need. And the beautiful, scandalous thing about the cross is that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace we've been given. So no one can boast about who they are and what they've done. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all stand the same. So what does that mean for us? Where are you getting your wisdom? Are you trying to get it from the world? Or are you getting it from God? Too many of us try to mix those things up. Uh, and it doesn't work well. Too often our identity is grounded in what others think of us. What our culture says of us. What our education is. What our, what our wealth is. 
But it also forces us to ask the question, this text here in 1 Corinthians, how much of my attitude about life, family, wealth, nationality, and other cultural items do we hold more dear than the messy wisdom of the cross? For those of us who are being saved, the cross is everything. And it must overrule the wisdom of the world. And, and I really want to offer to you today that, that wisdom, that salvation in Jesus Christ, the cross. It, I believe, is the only thing that matters. It is the only thing that gives hope that we have a Messiah, Jesus, who chose to die for our sins, to free us from our past, to give us hope in our present, and to give us a future that has set us free from being guilty from the law, that makes us right standing before God and sets us free from the bondage of slavery. I want to offer that salvation to you right now. In fact, uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. If you're watching and you are a Christian, I I pray that you would just uh, meditate on this goodness of God and His wisdom. Lord, we thank You for this wisdom that You give us in the cross, how the cross saves to the uttermost. We are so grateful for that salvation. But for those who might be watching today who who have never given their life over to the to the message of the cross, to the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, I I pray right now that they would let go, that they they would not see it as foolishness or a scandal, but the ultimate gift of grace, an ultimate gift to those we don't deserve it, and that's the the key thing that God offers it, to, offers it to us even though we don't deserve. Lord, I pray for those watching right now that they would give their life to you. Lord, uh, come into their lives. Dwell in their hearts. Help them to see that they need you and that this gift of salvation is true wisdom beyond anything they could ever receive. Come, Holy Spirit, fill their hearts. Help them to reach out to, to a church or to find a local church where they can connect with um, so that they can grow in this journey in you. But Lord, I'm so grateful for those who are listening and, uh, and receive you this day. Lord, we love you and we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Y'all have a great week. Uh, I pray if you did make that uh, prayer of salvation that you would talk to someone about it. You can get email us or text us, let us know. I uh, also encourage you to continue to read through Corinthians over the next several weeks. Y'all have a great week. Peace.